And we are once again turning to this little but awesome epistle. Uh, The book of Titus, one of the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Titus, then second Timothy in order of its authorship by the Apostle Paul. We are calling our service, excuse me, our series, <laughs> The Gospel-Ordered Church. Next week, we'll wrap up this little epistle, and then we will um, take two weeks break from expository preaching. And then September 19th, we jump back into our series called uh, The Gospel According to Isaiah. We like the gospel here, a study of the major prophet Isaiah, uh, as again, we Gospel according to Isaiah. We've learned a lot about Jesus in the first 27 chapters, and we'll jump back in again. We'll probably take another break, long book, but we'll get through it. Um, and uh, again, we love the gospel. His name is Jesus. So our scripture lesson, as you uh, remember from last week, starts in verse 8. But what I want to do is I want to read uh, going back to verse 3. Uh, context is always important, but especially today. Um, so I'm in Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read in from verses 3 through 11. I want to read from the ESV and the word, infallible, authoritative, inspired word from God. Titus chapter chapter 3, verses 3 through 11. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once... And then twice have nothing more to do with him. Verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This little epistle we know is written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Titus. Titus is one of the young men that accompanied Paul uh, as Paul went on mission trips, planting churches, and encouraging churches that he had previously established. And we know that Titus and Paul, at some point between his first imprisonment and his second Roman imprisonment, which led to his martyrdom, visited the island of Crete on the, in the Mediterranean Sea. We also know that the people of Crete were known to be an ungodly crew and an ungodly culture. In fact, chapter 1, verse 12 says that one of his own prophets, one of their own poets, said, Cretans are liars, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and then Paul says, which is true. We know from this letter that Paul is dealing with all kinds of sinful issues and sinful practices within the culture in Crete, but also dealing with things in the church, sinful practices within the church and false teachers known as the circumcision party. They were promoting what is called a work-based salvation, faith plus 
works equal salvation. In fact, chapter 1, verse 11 says they were upsetting whole families by teaching for, for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul not only reminds Titus over and over about the truth of the gospel, but tells them, and we saw, saw this last week, we'll see it again this week, he tells them, that this is really important, that, that as the gospel is being lived out, what it looks like being lived out in the church with, with men and women who love the gospel, who love Jesus, who have been born again, born anew, regenerated by the work of Christ. This little book, <laughs> I, I've never preached through this book. I've read it, of course, many times. But this little book has got to be one of the most succinct New Testament book that, that connects the gospel, the truth of the grace of God, with good works connects the truth of the grace of God with good works. How gospel centrality shows itself in gospel practicality. How gospel doctrine demonstrates itself in gospel devotion. How gospel truth is lived out in gospel life. It's beautiful. We see this gospel, this devotion to the gospel, this this love for Christ being demonstrated in good works. Right out of the gate, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse one, Paul says, "I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm planting churches for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, truth which leads or accords to godliness." We said this last week. What we do matters. What we do matters. If we're claiming to be forgiven and redeemed by grace through faith in the atoning work of Christ alone, how we live matters. Now, doing good, obeying God, loving others can never and will never save you. It can't earn your way into a right, forgiven, accepted relationship with God. But it does demonstrate that it has taken place. In fact, the word works in Titus is mentioned in multiple times. Chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells Titus, be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8, devote yourself to do good works. Chapter 3, verse 14, we'll look at next week, devote yourself to good works. Paul cares and is interested how we are living out the truth of the grace of God. Chapter 1. It was all about church leaders, how they, how they are living out the gospel. Chapter 2, we saw it's about how the church, men and women and bond slaves in the church live out the gospel. Chapter 3, we said last week, is all about how the gospel is lived out in the world. How the church lives on the mission to the world. Three simple headings right from the text. Number one, how are they to do it? Number one, they are devoted to good works. Number two, they are to avoid Foolish debates. Number three, they are to reject the self-condemned. Number one, devoted to good works. Verse eight, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist. The word actually is not only insist on these things, but insist on them confidently. I want you to confidently insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God, there's faith by, 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 salvation by faith, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I don't think I will ever get tired, I hope that I will never get tired of proclaiming and relishing in the gospel. 
I hope that we as a church, you as an individual, never get tired of hearing how the grace of God in Christ rescued you. If we ever get tired of it, it's not the good news. It's not the gospel. It's not the proclamation of the gospel. It's our failure to see it, to treasure it above all earthly things. As the old 1800 hymn writer wrote, Catherine uh, Hankey, back in the late 1800s, said it so well. She said this in this hymn, old hymn. I love to tell the story. You know, you know how it goes. If I was Perry Jones, I'd sing it, but I'm not. <laughs> I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story, she writes, because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. For some have never heard the message of salvation from God's holy word. I love to tell the story. The old, old story. That's precisely what Paul is saying. It's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, this saying or thus saying is trustworthy, and I want you to confidently insist on these things. What is trustworthy? What is reliable? What is dependable? Everything I just said in chapter 3, I want you to insist on these things. The, the generosity and love of the Father, how it appeared in the grace of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we once were living in unbridled sin and pleasures and sinful passions of the past. Chapter 3, verse 3. Slaves to sin, being filled with envy and malice, hating and hating one another. Yet he, verse 5a, saved us in the midst of that by sheer grace, unmerited, unearned. Nothing we could have done. He saved us. Look what it says in verse 5. By his mercy, his own love, his own mercy. He gets the praise. He gets the, 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 the worship for his all all the work that he has done, his regenerating work, his cleansing. Look at verse 5, 6, and 7, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, his atoning work. Listen, when we stand before the judgment, the cosmic judge in the cosmic courtroom, God himself, we will be totally and completely guilty of sin. But rather than bang the gavel of guilty, he will say because of Christ, declare just, righteous, forgiven, come enter into eternal life. That story, that story, that message of grace and mercy and love of God, Paul tells Titus, is what he must continue in, insist on, confidently preach and teach all the churches. It's a trustworthy saying. So that those who believe and receive, those who treasure and delight in that story, they may pay close attention. Be careful, he says, and pay close attention because, because of Why? Look what it says. So that those who have believed in God may be what? Careful to devote themselves to good works. Jonathan Edwards. If your heart is full of love, it will find vent. It will find a way out. You will find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, it will send forth streams. End quote. But if you get it backwards... Devotion to good works in order to be justified. Devotion to good works in order to be saved and redeemed. In order to be right with God, you'll be in bondage. You'll be in bondage. But if it is by the gospel, but if it is by grace that you're devoted to good works, it becomes joyful. Why? How does, how does, how does that order and that motive make it joyful? Well, first of all, the motive of doing good no longer becomes, I have to do good. But I get to do good. I don't have to do good to get anything from God. I already have God. 
motive change. You see, the gospel changed our hearts from the fear of not doing good deeds well enough or not doing them often enough to doing good deeds gratefully and joyfully because God is enough. We're no longer condemned, Romans 8.1. We no longer live in fear. We can radically and, and we can be profoundly generous and kind because we are accepted, we are loved, we are valued by God through the good deed of Christ. It was Tim Keller in a great book called Generous Justice said this, Before you give a neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite will you go into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus, we can start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be. End quote. Getting the, getting the, the, the order right is so important. Our good deeds then are motivated by the grace of God and the love of God. Our good deeds are also made, motivated by hope. The hope of the gospel. Look what it says in verse 7 of chapter 3. Remember that by God's justifying us by his grace, we now become what? Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Bible has a lot to say how, about how we live today is affected by the hope and the unwavering promise of our future. The hope of our future. Think of it this way. I, I mentioned this before. You're in an assembly line in a factory. And you're putting labels on a box 10 hours a day, every day, seven days a week. At the end of the year, you're going to get $10,000. Another person do the same thing at the end of the year, he gets $10 million. Let me tell you, you'll be a happy camper every day putting that label on with a smile if you're getting $10 million. What you do in the end affects how you live. Suppose someone's going to come to your house, maybe your favorite president. Don't tell me who he is. I don't want to know. But he's coming to your house. Going to bring a crew. He's going to stay for a couple of days. You're going to go home and clean, I hope. Maybe even mow the lawn. Maybe even move some furniture around. What are you doing? Your future guest is causing you to do something that you weren't planning on doing, but things change. Let me tell you, something greater and someone greater is coming. His name is Jesus. Just as a bride whose husband is away on the military looks forward and eager for his return, so believers who have tasted the goodness and the grace of God looking for their bridegroom to come. That hope motivates us to deal with our sin, but also motivates us to do good. His hope of his coming. We're certainly not saying, and I want to say it again, that somehow we can merit salvation. Ephesians 2, right? Not by our own doing, not a result of works. But by the grace you've been saved through faith. But, listen, good deeds, Paul would say, are the result, not the cause, but a result of our being new creation. And they testify to the reality of our redemption. So that our lives might reflect, according to Ephesians 2, the workmanship of God. The good deeds and the workmanship and character of God. You see, good deeds out of the gospel results because we've been united with Christ by grace. And we have hope of his coming. The promise of his return. For apart from him, what does the Bible say? We can do nothing. But in Christ, we are created for good, God-glorifying, exaltating, exalting good deeds. Paul goes on. These things are excellent and profitable. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
These things, a lot of commentators say he's talking about strictly about good deeds. I agree with that. But I think, I think Paul would say, yes, but good deeds motivated by the gospel. Good deeds, he insisting on the teaching and the preaching of deeds done through the grace of God. That's what I think he's saying. And that people need to see, when he talks about people here, he's not just talking about the church. I think, according to the context, he's really talking about the people in the world that aren't Christians yet. They'll see the beauty and the glory of Christ. They will see the positive demonstration of the gospel toward them. And they will see Christ lived out in and among and through us. I think that's what, that's what chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 is really, really talking about and ending on these things are praiseworthy. These things insist on these good deeds generated by the gospel is what we need to do. John Stott in his commentary, I was reading this week, said this. I, I think he just, it's just, I couldn't say it any better, so I just wrote it down. He says, quoting, this is, um, chapter 3 again, the whole chapter, he says this. He says, we are now in a position to summarize the six essential ingredients of salvation. Six essential ingredients of salvation. Its need is our sin, guilt, and slavery. Its source is God's gracious, loving kindness. Its grounds is not our merit, but God's mercy in the cross. Its means is the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Its goal, our final inheritance of eternal life. And its evidence is our diligent practice of good works, end quote. That's the, that's the chapter. We don't just talk about salvation by grace alone. We talk about what it looks like. The evidence of that salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. Devoted to good works. Now, he tells us to avoid something. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. For they are now what? Unprofitable, right? I just told you what was profitable, what was excellent. Now let me tell you what's unprofitable and not excellent, but worthless, in other words, you have the doctrine of grace and the deeds that flow from it that are profitable, but there's an enemy. There's another side to that. And, right? There's another side that, that's unprofitable and it's worthless. It's an enemy to the mission. And those who engage in that foolishness distract the church from its mission and its purpose. They distract the church by their, what their, Paul tells Titus to avoid, they distract the church from its purpose and its mission. Now, before we look at what that is, there are four things, notice with me the contrast. Paul is telling Titus here in chapter 3, verse 9, to avoid foolish genealogies. Literally, the word means turn yourself around for the purpose of avoiding something. It's a present imperative. It's, it's, it's a command to consistently and continually be vigilant about avoiding something. Avoid it. But in chapter 1, verse 13, he tells Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or restored to good and holy and right doctrine. Rebuke them sharply. Now, who is them and, and why such a hard response, harsh, harsh response in chapter 1? But here, avoid. Well, if you look at me in chapter 1, verse 13, they were the insubordinate ones. They were deceivers. They are to be silenced. Now, you've got to be careful who you say that to. Because <laughs> it may mean one thing to me and one thing to somebody else, right? Silence them. Okay. 
They're the circumcision party. Look, their whole families are being disrupted. Teaching salvation plus, with, with authority, plus works. Paul doesn't play around when it comes to the gospel. Galatians 1 says, anyone preach another gospel? Then justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, let him be accursed, condemned. The heresy that they were teaching with their so-called authority, that heresy, really threatens the very heart and the very nature of the gospel. Salvation itself. And here, though, he says, there's a different group that, that, that just seem to be having these foolish debates. Dangerous for sure, deceptive for sure. Yet, Paul calls on Titus to simply not participate with their foolishness, to avoid them. But also to what? Goes on to say, warn them. Warn them. So my takeaway is this. Fools need patience. Heretics need to be silenced. Right? That's my takeaway. Four things to avoid in the context of, we know, the false teachers. Number one, foolish controversies. Avoid all foolish controversies. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say avoid controversies. It does say avoid all what? Foolish controversies. Why? Jesus himself got into all kinds of controversies, didn't he? Jesus himself was in constant debate with religious leaders. Paul himself drawn into many controversies. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. So obviously, Paul's not saying don't get into any any conversations, anything controversial, or any debates. He said, but avoid foolish controversies. They are to be avoided. And I think sometimes we get into these foolish controversies and then we elevate them to the things of first importance. And that's part, that's a problem. In that day, the false teachers that he's talking about, the, the religious leaders, were speculating these fantasies concerning the word of God. Look what it says next. It says, foolish controversies, genealogies. Paul is writing against people in that day, in that era, biblical scholars of that day, who would allegorize Old Testament people. Names and genealogies, uh, family trees of that day and that era, even extra canonical stories, um, non, non-biblical in a sense of doesn't have the authority of the rule, canonical is authority, the Bible itself. They would take these names and, and they would make these speculations about these individuals and they would add these allegorical and wild and crazy interpretations of what they mean. Rather than seeing them simply for historical purposes, the redemptive work of Christ, using people like Abraham and other people to show forth the coming of Christ, they had these strange and senseless allegorical and mystical interpretations. It was John MacArthur speaking on this issue said this, all of a sudden that secret elevated mystical truth becomes the real truth and they could spin fables and legends and out it concoct a whole religion that is generated out of hell itself, end quote. That's what they were doing that. Don't get them, listen, avoid foolish controversies concerning genealogies and now dissensions and quarrels about the law. You know, there's no need, there's no need to get into debates, fights, and, and brawls, cause any division of dissension and quarrels concerning how we must obey God's law in order to be 
saved, rescued, redeemed. Whether it's the Old Testament rules or rituals, especially laws that are created for the clean and the unclean, because we are not saved by obeying God's law, we can't do it. Why fight over it? Adding anything to the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that faith in Jesus plus something else, is a foolish debate that is not worth getting into. That's what the false teachers were trying to do. But obviously there was a group that was just looking and having these foolish conversations and those who were actually teaching that with authority that they must be silenced. They must be a different group. I'm not sure. But obviously he's saying to them, warn them once, warn them twice. Third time, strike three, right? Barton says this in his commentary. Well, Paul's warning is against petty quarrels. Not dishonest, excuse me, not honest discussions for wisdom. As foolish arguments develop, they should rebuke the false teachers and turn the discussion back to the helpful and profitable direction, end quote. So he's telling Paul, listen, uh, Titus, don't get into these foolish discussions and debates. Now, churches are known to get into foolish controversies, controversies and debates, are they not? You have some of you grown up in a church, you had the funniest things happen in church and arguments at different meetings. Don't raise your hand. Don't want to know. Um, but this is a man by the name of Thomas Rayner. He was the CEO and president of Lifeway Publishing. Um, he also now, he's not anymore. He runs uh, an organization called Church Answers. He's a kind of authority on church health, for lack of a better term. Anyway, he did a... Um, he did a survey on Twitter asking people about the silly controversies and debates that people get into church, at the church. He listed 25. I'm just going to read 10. It's hysterical. And they come with his commentary, which I think is funny. I left it in here too. So reasons, debates, and arguments, foolish things that people get involved in at the church, okay? Number one, argument over the appropriate length of the worship's pastor's beard. Ricky's not here yet today, but he'll hear it. He says, I think there's a verse that indicates that it could be no longer than 1.5 inches than the pastor's beard himself. He has nothing to worry about there. Number two, a dispute and argument came over whether the worship leader should have shoes on during the worship service. He says, I vote for shoes, shirts, and pants. Number three, a deacon accusing another deacon... Sorry, Paul, Mike's not here, but if he was, a debate and an argument broke out because one deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matters in the parking lot. He said they should have sold tickets, they could have raised money. Number four, a church argument broke out to decide whether there should be a clock in the worship center or should it be removed. We don't have one here. He said this, of course, was a timely argument. Church argument and heated argument broke out 45 minutes over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. A black one, a brown one, won't two or three or four draws. This is an official cabinet meeting of the church leadership, he writes. Verse number six, business meeting argument again about a church that they should or not, should or should not purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. He said that was really a wacky meeting. Number seven. 
arguments, listen to this, of what type of green beans the church should serve. He said they should have asked me, I would have said none. Number eight, an argument on whether the church should allow, this, this, is, this happened, whether a church should allow deviled eggs at a church meal. He says, only if it's balanced with angel food for dessert. (laughs) Number nine, disagreement and debate over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. He says, the concept of luck contradicts, I get it, the theology of a sovereign God. The issue is very serious. Good luck trying to resolve it. Number 10, a dispute over whether church should allow people to wear black t-shirts. Since black is the color of the devil. He says, are you sure? I thought it was red. (laughs) Paul would say, avoid foolish debates. Stay on mission, right? Number three, verse 10, reject the self-condemned. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now it's getting a little personal. Let me, let me first say there's a, there's a huge difference between needing to remove someone due to their rebellion, their rebellion against the leaders in the church, and loving to remove someone. There's a big difference. A person's leaders in particular who are concerned for the love and the peace and the purity of the church sometimes is forced to say, have nothing to do with them. Actually, literal, the literal word means to reject them. Forced to remove them. But that's not who they are. That's not what they want. Ken Hughes, he, he, someone, true leader, enter arguments regrettably, regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair and truthful and loving. He grieves to, grieves to disagree with his brother. Those who are divisive by nature lust for fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to, to conquer another person. For them, victory means everything, end quote. That, that's that kind of people he's talking about. Paul is saying in many ways, do and practice what Jesus taught us about church discipline. Right? Matthew 18. Go to a brother, warn them when they're in sin, warn them again. Second time, Paul says here, Practice the the three-strike rule. You went once, you went twice. On a third strike, have nothing to do with them. But it must be serious, right? Matthew 18 teaches us that. That when there's a wayward, uh, uh, sinning brother or sister, we have to go to that person face-to-face, personally. We have to then go with a witness. And finally, if there's no repentance, the community gets involved. Of course, when there is repentance and the person is sorrowful over their sin, there's restoration and steps to restoration. First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter as an apostle, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Warn him as a brother. If he feels bad and there is shame, well, that's the work of sin. You should feel bad when you do bad. But hopefully that will be a, a message, that will be an opportunity for him to turn and be healed, be restored, right? That's what it is. That's what, that's what church discipline is, to, to restore the individual. For not only for the restoration of the individual, for the glory of Christ, for the betterment of the, of, the, of the church. Because division and divisiveness and, and discord and those who, who are constantly causing those things, 
what they do to a church is they, 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 they wind up infecting the church, and we become, we become confused, we become frustrated, we become angry, and there's a lot of dissension in the church. It's not good. And the church, I'll tell you what, will not be devoted to good works. The church will not be sound in their doctrine. The church will not be effective as they participate in the Missio Dei, in the mission of God. Paul says, you know what? At that point, it's useless. Men have twisted their minds and there's no need to condemn them. Why? Because look what it says, they're self-condemned. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. In fact, the word warp, the Greek verb, is a perfect passive indicative, meaning an action that has happened in the past, continuing in the future, and is happening right now. Okay? In other words, what he's saying is they're, they're in a hardened state of mind as I'm writing this letter. They're living a life of unconfessed, unrepented sin. They just won't listen. The warning has been rejected. The one now is in a full-blown and is culpable. And the Bible says that he is to be rejected, set out of the church. And family, let me tell you, that's heartbreaking. To the pastors, to the leaders, to the church family, it's heartbreaking. Should it be done? Does it need to be done? Absolutely. It must be done in love. It must be done in desire to heal. Not just to get rid of someone. It must be... Again, a warning, a loving warning. We must be patient. But at one point, at some point, sometimes, and we, we church, if you're a covenant member of this church, we, we've, we've painfully, painfully have gone through this process. Scripture teaches us that church discipline is for the purpose of the good of the wayward brother or sister, the good and holiness of the entire church, and the glory of God. A church just cannot ignore determinative, unrepentive sin. And that's what Paul's talking about. A willful life full of sin must be dealt with. It can't be left unchecked. We have responsibility to others. We have responsibility to Jesus. We have responsibility to one another. While we should pray, sometimes we need to protect. And it's obvious that Paul here has, I don't know if he has someone in mind, but he's talking about a group of people, obviously, in the church who were greatly influenced by the culture. And Paul here is trying to instruct the church. He's trying to encourage the church, these, these multiple churches on the island of Crete, to stay focused on the gospel, to stay focused on doing good for the purpose of staying focused on the missio day. That's what this chapter is for, the mission of God for the glory of God. And here at King's Chapel, our ultimate authority that keeps us on mission is the word of God. Of course, letters like this, letter to Titus. But under the word of God, and certainly not, par with the word of God, we have what we call our mission statement and our core values. It's something that we here at King's Chapel, uh, every couple of years, we just talk through them. I'm going to do it very briefly today of why we are here. Again, why and how do we stay on course? How do we stay on course? How do we keep the mission? Well, our mission statement is very clear. We exist as a church, King's Chapel, to glorify God means make much of him, his incalculable world, his great value, his purposes, and his, and his majesty for his glory by living on mission. With him, he's doing it in making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. The Missio Dei, Latin for the mission of God. And the mission of God, the Missio Dei is this 
Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sending his people on mission. John chapter 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me on on, on a mission of redemption. Now, we're not dying for people, but Jesus came on a mission to redemption. Jesus says, the Father sent me, so I'm sending you to proclaim that mission. And the focus of the church, the, the, the people of God, is to take the gospel, the good news of the redemption of Christ, to the world. Our neighbors at home, our home, our neighbors, our communities first, our co-workers, fellow students, cashiers, and then around the world. That keeps us on mission. We have three core values. Eternity, identity, community. E for eternity. That there's an eternal God who created us in the Imago Dei, in his image and likeness with worth and value and purpose granted and endowed to us by him, by our creator. But rather than love and trust God, we run from him and sinned against him. And when sin entered the world, everything began to unravel. There is death, there is disease, deformity, social injustice, hatred, murder, all kinds of evil, the scripture says, because one man entered into the world, sin came through one man, Adam, and through death came all sin, he says, Romans chapter 3. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, end quote. So, Adam, we know in chapter 1, runs from the presence of God. And because we are in Adam before we were born again, we too run from God and sin. Here at King's Chapel, when we talk about sin, we don't just talk about breaking the golden rule. That's part of it. But when we talk about sin, we talk about breaking the very first rule. Have no other gods before me. It's not just violating the rule or the standard which God set. It is taking good things and making them ultimate things. It is worshiping the creation rather than the creator God, Romans chapter 1. And because of sin entered the world, we die, we are separated from God. But in Romans, excuse me, in Genesis 1, what you see when sin enters the world, what you see is this loving, missionary heart of God who goes after Adam. He not only goes after Adam, but in the middle of chaos and brokenness, he speaks and makes a promise. He says, I will, not I might, but I will. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, God gives a promise that a son will come. He will be bruised, but yet he will come and he will destroy the certain uh, Satan. That he will be sent and come and destroy the enemy. And that's exactly what he did, right? So God sends his son into the world to identify as you, with us in humanity without sin and then redeems us. And by grace, he rescues us and redeems us by giving us eternal life through the redeeming work, the atoning work of Jesus. That's the big E, right? That's the big E, not only in eternity, but that's the big E on the chart here at King's Chapel, The gospel, the message of the gospel is paramount. God the Father sent God the Son to be a sin-bearing substitute who died in our place. He would take the wrath of the Father against sin that we deserve in order to redeem us back to himself. Rescue and release us from the penalty of our sins. That's the good news that drives everything we do. We live on mission to make disciples through the message of the gospel. Now, before we move on, 
what, what is a disciple? So disciple comes from the word learner. So a disciple is of Jesus, if you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus, then you have responded to the call of Christ to turn from your sin, to repent, and to believe on him, on his work on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the grave. So if you're a disciple, you're a learner, you're constantly learning the gospel. And we would say you're also, as a disciple, applying the gospel to your life. And then a disciple of Jesus communicates the gospel to others for the glory of God and the joy of his people. We believe the gospel never gets old. Eternity, gospel redemption. I stands for identity, gospel transformation. It's exactly what Titus has been told by Paul throughout this letter. Every follower of Jesus needs to know and be reminded that it's the same gospel of grace that makes them disciples is the same gospel of grace that matures them. God saves us by grace and we are to live by that same grace. The principle is glaring in Titus chapter 1 verse 1 again. The purpose of Paul. The faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth, leads to godliness. We saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we saw that men, women, and bond servants are called to live a godly life through the training, if you remember in chapter 2, through the training of God's grace. God's grace trains us. In chapter 3, we're told that God saved and justified us, and now we are what? Heirs according to the promise. The gospel, the grace of God, changes us from wayward people to adopted children, sons and daughters of Christ. And that same grace that makes us his kids gave us our new identity is what transforms the heart and propels us to obedience and to good works. Our new identity in Christ is that we are loved, we are secure, we are accepted not by our own good deeds, not by our own righteousness, but his. We are justified, made right with God by grace. And now we are secure in that grace and that love of God. We are secure in our relationship with him. That love is what transforms us. That grace is what transforms us. That love and grace is what trains us. Chapter 3, verse 12. To renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We have to apply the gospel. Listen, obedience to God, good works, what we call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, takes time. It takes an act of the will. But that can easily slip into thinking, I have to do these things in order to be loved, in order to be accepted. That's why it's part of our core values. No, 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 no. It is because we are loved. It is because we are are accepted. It is because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us by faith that we now can do those things. Paul understood the initial call of grace into the gospel, but he also knew that call of grace is how we live. Forgiveness of sin and the progress we make overcoming sin is by that same grace. It is the answer to each problem, the key to every closed door, the barrier to which we walk through. Something we've seen over and over. So we are a gathering of Christ followers. A life that is growing but being shaped by the gospel. And that life will be generous, loving, graceful, and joyful. And as Christ followers, we are constantly applying the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of our new identity as we live a life of humility and repentance, eternity, identity, and finally community. 
When we talk about community, and you'll see this even more next week, it's all, this is all through Titus, if you're thinking about it, if you've been around for our study. The gospel restoration is both a monastic gathering and a missional gathering, right? That's part of our core values. If you've been around for our core value series 10 years ago, whatever it was, you know that monastic comes from monastery where people gather together usually to, to worship God alone and to be alone, but we gather together to worship God corporately. We gather Sunday mornings and we gather again in community groups to read the word of God, to study, to, to pray, to encourage one another, to live life together. Did you know that in, in Genesis, God in chapter 1 and 2 creates the universe and looks at everything and says it was very good. There's only one time in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 that he looked and he said it is not good. Chapter 2 verse 18, it is not good, God said, that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The one thing that was not good was that Adam was alone. The announcement was not after sin entered the world, so it wasn't about his imperfection. It was actually something not good in his perfection. It is not good. The ache of relationship, of community, is the ache that is not a part of or a result of sin. It's before sin entered the world. It's part of God's perfection. Now, although God is always and always will be, is and always will be, totally satisfied in himself. He's complete in all his goodness and all his greatness. He doesn't need us. He is a creative God who chose in love to display his glory, to, to, to create us in his image and likeness, to display his greatness. And God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, in fa- uh, God the Father, God, three persons in the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing, living in community from eternity past to eternity future. And we want to know why we have this ache of community that God created us in his image and likeness. That's why. We were created to have relationships. Created and designed to grow together, to love one another, to encourage one another, to lift one another up when we fall, to experience the joy and, and, the, and the pains of life together. And when we do that, when we, when we live out the gospel, that, that life of, of gospel living, then we see this restoration of this true gospel community, what community really looks like. But it's not just monastic. It is also missional. That's what Paul's talking about. We grow together and we are called to demonstrate and declare the gospel together. Our mission, brothers and sisters, is to bring glory to God as we declare the good news of the gospel and we demonstrate through the gospel good works toward others, making disciples and calling people, everyone, to come and repent and believe on Jesus. We are the church, the presence of Christ, King Jesus, as he reconciles, redeems, and restores the kingdom through the gospel. A church that's not on mission, on the Missio Dei, is not a New Testament church. God is working to restore his creation back to himself. Now listen, we will not stay focused on the Missio Dei, on the mission of God, if we're quarreling about things, and we aren't. This is a reminder if we're quarreling about things that are unprofitable and worthless, or if we refuse to repent of unconfessed sin and we have to be put out of the church. 
Family, that's not what God wants. We must recognize what God saved us from and be grateful that he rescued and redeemed us by grace through the washing and regenerating of the Holy Spirit and that by his grace he justified us. By his love and goodness and kindness towards Christ, he redeemed us. His perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross and glorious resurrection from the grave. Listen, we're not to be rebellious and argumentative. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're to be careful. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Careful how we speak. Being gentle, being kind, being intentionally loving others, knowing the hurts and dreams and sorrows and joys, and looking for ways to bridge that gap so that we can share the good news, show good deeds, and share the good news of Christ. Every believer, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you're a missionary. You're a missionary. Someone who takes the unchanging gospel and brings it into their cultural context so that they can tell others about Jesus Christ. That's why Paul told Titus, Titus, to be devoted, to strive in good deeds. Good, God-glorifying deeds that they may see the goodness and greatness of our Savior. They are excellent, beautiful, proper, praiseworthy, profitable, and useful, and beneficial. How are they beneficial? Because they are a segue into showing and proclaiming Christ. The hope of the nations. The hope of our communities. You know what? It just might open that door to tell the old story. As the band comes up, this is what we're going to do in response. Okay, family? Just give me one minute. As the band comes up, I'll be done. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do a song. We're going to just spend time in in prayer. You could stand. You could sit. Um, White as snow. What, What has the Holy Spirit showed you today? What is Jesus trying to teach you today? What is Jesus trying to show you concerning changes maybe he wants you to make? Maybe being intentional. Maybe understanding the mission. Whatever it may be. And we'll cry out, have mercy on me. Create in me a new heart. We're just going to spend some time in prayer and singing. Stand, sit, whatever you want. That'll be our first response. And then we're going to close with a song that has to do with the church. And we're going to say, yes, Jesus, we're part of you, your church, you're on mission. We want to join what you're doing with your kids following you. We want, we want opportunities as we pray and seek and look to love people so that we can share with them the good news of the gospel. That's a two-part response. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for saving and rescuing Paul, writing this letter to Titus. Thank you that 2,000 years later, it is so applicable to us today. Lord, as we respond in song and in prayer, Father, we pray that you would, you would do that. You would have mercy on us. You would create in us a new heart. We would, we would see the truth of Christ, all that he's done for us in the gospel. And by his grace, Lord, we may go out into the world declaring and demonstrating with all gratitude and thanksgiving the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.